Ladies and gentlemen, live from the gleaming Streamline Studios. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, live from the Lighten Up Lounge in the hills of Encino, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. The following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a broadcast vengeance by Magic Matt Allen and is heard worldwide on Outlaw Radio, Backyard Party Network, uh, the fillings of your teeth, and at midnight tonight on uh, Air FM. I am the legendary Burl Bear, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. The man in the lawyer chair is not a lawyer. It's fact checker Mark Boyer. Hello. Hopefully my facts will be better checked this week. Yes. Well, hopefully you get a big check for your facts. (laughs) The weird thing about coincidences is that they're always coinciding. It's one of their peculiar characteristics. That was quite profound. I wish I would have said that first, but I didn't. (laughs) Uh, Leslie Charters, creator of The Saint, said that back in about 1932, and it's still correct. Were it not for an amazing set of coincidences, I believe the daughter of uh, Jeannie McDonough would no longer be amongst the living. Miss McDonough, are you there, my dear? I am. We are. Hi, this is Mark, Jeannie, I'm Burl. Nice to have you on the show. You looked good on TV the other night, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, This is one of the most amazing, uh, harrowing stories that I have heard in a long, long time, and our audience is going to hear it here in just a minute. But anyone, anyone who is a parent and loves their kids can not imagine anything more horrifying than what you experienced in your home on the 29th of, I believe it was July 2007. Am I correct? It was July 2007. It was actually the 30th. The 30th, after midnight, but yep. let it all hang out. <laughs> now, you're in bed, minding your own business. Mm-hmm. Tell us what happens. Um, well, at quarter of four in the morning, we heard a little whimper come from the bedroom next to ours. And that's where our 15-year-old daughter, Shay, was sleeping. And we just heard a whimper. I had just gotten up probably 15 minutes beforehand to use the bathroom and get a drink of water. It was such a hot night. It was probably 95, 97 degrees that night, and um, not a great night for sleeping anyway. But, you know, I had just gotten up, so I wasn't sound asleep, and neither was my husband, and we heard the whimper come from the bedroom next to us, and I said, I'll go check on Shay, and Kevin said, no, I'll go, and I said, no, I'll go, and we just looked at each other and laughed and said, well, we'll both go. Thank God. Yeah, thank God, but thank God Kevin went before me, you know? Because when he opened the bedroom door, uh, he saw a man all dressed in black standing over our daughter with his hand, left hand over her mouth, pressing her face down into the pillow. And he said, who are you? And the intruder did not respond. And at that moment... Well, I doubt he's going to stop and, like, show you his ID or anything. (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) Um, But at that moment, we startled him as much as he startled us. And he stood up, and we saw, Kevin saw the knife in his hand. No, when you say knife, for those of you who have not seen a picture of this thing, or didn't see this this woman on TV Friday night, this isn't, we're not talking a pocket knife here. No. About the size of uh, Rhode Island. <laughs> what it looked like to me in the picture. And not only does it have the regular sharp blade on one side, it has the serrated blade on the other. Yeah, yeah, it was quite something. And... So Kevin, when he saw the knife, he grabbed the intruder by the wrist and 
yanked him away from our daughter and spun him around on the adjacent bed. It was a very small room, and there were two beds in the room, and that probably worked to our advantage. And Kevin got on his back and pressed him onto the bed, and at that same moment, I went, Kevin said, grab the knife, and so I tried to grab the blade of the knife, but, Ooh. I mean, I tried to grab the handle of the knife. You can't tell what the handle is on that thing and what isn't. Yeah, well, I mean, I just knew it wasn't, what I was doing wasn't doing anything. It was ineffective. So I just figured, okay, I'm just going to grab the blade of the knife. I had no Ouch. choice. So I grabbed the blade of the knife and held on, and he was probably on the bed for about 30 seconds, and then the intruder got a burst of adrenaline and stood up with my husband on his back, and... I thought at that particular moment, that's it, we're all dead. But Kevin was able to get his arm around the intruder's throat, used all his weight and threw himself backwards, mm. and the two of them landed on the floor at the foot of the bed and the closet. It was about a two-foot, two, two-and-a-half-foot space that they were just squished into. And... So meanwhile, what's your daughter, while this fight's going on, is she must be traumatized already, right? She was traumatized. She was just sitting on the bed. But then once, once that took place and Kevin had him on the floor, Shay called 911. And when you call, she had her cell phone, and when you call 911 from your cell phone, it automatically goes to the state police, mm -hmm. which we didn't know. And so they said to her, hold on and they were going to transfer her to the local Chelmsford Dispatch. Well, it's lucky it wasn't outsourced to India. What, yeah. uh, what, well, where, where is uh, uh, Chelmsford? It's um, north of Boston. Okay. Yeah. And so um, they, said, they said, hold on. She thought they were putting her on hold, so she hung up at that moment and was going to call them back. And meanwhile, Kevin had the intruder on the floor in, in the bedroom and had his arm around his throat and was choking him out. And Kevin said to Shay, again, Shay came back into the room and, sh and Kevin said, Shay, call 911 and get my gun. Well, we don't have a gun. And Sounds Shay, good, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, he didn't know that. You know, the trucker didn't know that. So... I mean, and quick thinking for Shay not to say, what gun, Dad? Where do you <laughs> you know, keep the gun? We don't have a gun, Dad. Why yeah. are you saying that? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, she played along with it. She said, okay. She left the room, and then she, um, and then the Chelmsford dispatch called her back again. And the police came. They were there in just about four minutes. It was, it was the longest four minutes of our life, I can, I can tell you. God, that. I would imagine so. Yeah. So when you've got this guy, do you, like, rip his mask off and, you know, you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on? I mean, that's such cognitive dissonance. This is not something you expect to be happening in your home. Right. No, it's not. And, and, and honestly, my thought process was that it was probably a high school kid that was obsessed with our daughter and was just trying to terrorize her. Well, the knife would terrorize the hell out of anybody. Yeah, exactly. And, and then being all dressed in black with a black ski mask on, that doesn't help either. But, you know, I think that that probably kept me from panicking and not being able to respond. The fact that I was, I really thought it was a high school kid. So when Kevin had him on the floor and was choking him out, the, the intruder said, you can take the knife from me. 
So I took the knife, and then I started asking him all these questions. I was pissed. I was I was trying to distract him at the same time and mm-hmm. keep him from from thinking about you know what his next move was going to be because I didn't know you know I didn't really know if he was how how dangerous yeah as if the knife wasn't a clue here. Well, right, <laughs> right. So I mean, I asked him all these questions, and um, you know, I said, "Who are you?" And he said he was nobody. He said, "Just let me leave." Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, right. Kevin and I just looked at each other like, yeah, right. Um, And I I said, what were you thinking? Because I really thought he was a high school kid that had just, like... Taken a prank too far, sort of thing. Yeah, and totally messed up his life, you know? And then when I heard his accent, he had a southern drawl, and Kevin and I just looked at each other and went, who is this guy? Oh, man, who, who is he? And... He, then he tried to trick me. I mean, he wanted to get me to leave the room. He saw that my hands were bleeding, and he said, you're, you're hurt. You should tend to your hands. And I just, I just looked at him. I, I think I, I'm sure I used quite an expletive there, and I think I said, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> that was good thinking on his part, from his perspective. I'm trying to put myself in his rather uncomfortable shoes. Yeah. If he can get you to leave the room to go take care of your hand, right. and your husband's head's probably going to turn and watch you go out the door or something, he had more weapons on him. Yes, he did. He had, a, he had another 15-inch hunting knife on his left leg, and that hand happened to actually be free. It mm. was, it, it, so he could have grabbed that knife and just come around and stabbed my husband if I'd left the room, but I, I didn't leave the room. And then the police came, so... It's, it, it's just a crazy story. Now, when, when the cops got there, did they immediately buy your story? Or, would, I mean, did he give up some big thing like, oh, no, this is all a misunderstanding? Or No, he didn't try anything like that. No, no, they, you know, the cops came in. He said, or I'll blow your head off. And um, I left the room because I was actually in a T-shirt and underwear, so I needed to go put some pants on. And, Good idea uh, when the cops are there. Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah, I was just like, okay. So Shay, we went in the other room, and Shay helped me get my pants on because my hands were all cut. I couldn't. I couldn't zip up my pants. And um, Kevin gave the intruder. He he basically like passed the intruder over to to the cops, and they stood him up. And I think Kevin said, "Get this piece of gum yeah. out of here" or something. And they stood him up, and then that's when they saw all the weapons on him. Yeah, in addition to the other 15-inch hunting knife, he had a few other items, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He had a, a garrote, a choke wire. Um, he had a Chinese throwing star, uh, another pocket knife. Um, yeah, and it was all in like a fanny pack around his waist. Yeah, a kill kit, I think they call that. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard that, but that would be exactly what it would be. Yeah. <sighs> there was a... a um an amazing set of um, fortuitous happenings that yeah. that that puts you in a position to save your daughter's life. Yeah, that's why I mentioned the coincidences always coinciding. Let's go through some of these things yeah. that miraculously led to you being able to save her. Starting yeah. with the heat. <laughs> right, right. Um, our air conditioning unit wasn't working, and if it had been, then our door would have been closed, and it would have been running. There's no way we would have heard anything coming from Shay's room because when he went in her room he closed the door behind him so there's there's just no way we would have heard anything I mean there were just so many and and if I hadn't got up to get that drink of water just a little earlier who knows if if I would have 
if I would have heard... Well, that wasn't a regular bedroom anyway, was it? No, no. She typically sleeps upstairs. We have a, a cape, and, um, you know, it was really, really hot. And their bedrooms upstairs don't have air conditioning units. So we put the AC unit in the spare bedroom and for the kids to sleep there if it got really hot. Um, and a lot of times, you know, they will sleep on the sectional by the back door where he came in because it's got windows all around the right. perimeter and a ceiling fan. So a lot of times they'd sleep there. God, she wasn't there. No, and you, your, uh, your son was uh, out that night. He was. He was spending the night at his best friend's house. And he, he, I knew he was spending the night, but I neglected to tell Shay that, so she left the back door unlocked for him thinking that he was going to be coming home. But instead, the man with the black mask. Yeah, the man with the black mask, for sure. Um, it was just, you know, and the other thing is we, we had a, um, a lab, Labrador Retriever mix, and he sleeps outside. He was on a dog run right by the, the driveway, and this guy walked right past him. And typically the dog will always bark. He will get caught around the rock and, and bark. And, and I'll go out there at, you know, 2, 3, in the, 4 in the morning and untangle him, never expecting that if I go outside to, to take care of the dog, somebody's going to be standing outside. With a 15-inch hunting knife and ill right. intentions. Right. But, you know, I mean, that easily could have been the scenario. Why, why your house? You know, well, we live... Uh, 495 is a is a major throughway, and we we live very close to 495. It, it's in our backyard essentially, and he we actually live on the southbound side of 495. He was parked in a rest area on the northbound side of 495, and he had gone through the neighborhood that night. He'd been to three residences before he came to our house and and got in. So basically, he's on a hunting mission. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he had that, that DVD in his truck, Hunting Humans. Oh, so God. Yeah, so he'd been watching this DVD um, about, you know, hunting people down and killing them before he went out on the road. <clears throat> I guess that's, you know, getting pumped up, you know, like a sports yeah. video. Yeah, exactly. And he had a bunch of other DVDs in there, like, you know, murder, mayhem kind of movies in there, too, so... I think that, you know, he, he totally gets his thrill um, from watching those movies and then going out and slicing women up. Now, he didn't try any sexual assault, however. No. He, you know, <clears throat> he had pulled the covers down from her. And because she had them pulled way up to, she remembers having them pulled way up to her chin when she went to bed because it was cool in the room. Um, and when she woke up and he had his hand over her mouth, and the knife to her throat, she recalled that the, the covers were pulled down. So, you know, what his, I don't know what, you know. What uh, his intentions were altogether. From what I have read, what I've seen, it seems like his obsession was more with some bizarre hatred of women and killing them. Yeah. Uh, just outright with no uh, other, you know, erotic uh, tendencies there. You never, you know, I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, at least from the, the case in New Jersey, Monica Massaro, he, he mutilated her body after he killed her um, and mutilated her in the genital area and everything else. And, you know, I think it's, it's after the kill that it, it thrills him, that then he thinks that he, you know... The power and control. 
Yeah. All those issues, uh, similar to Robert Lee Yates, the uh, Spokane serial killer, who uh, was impotent until he'd killed them. And then he would have his way with them. Oh, oh yeah, not too pleasant there. Either. No, not really. No. So it turns out that this guy uh, who is, you know, putting on his hunting suit and going out hunting humans and picks your house or actually tries several houses to get in, finds your back doors unlocked, comes in and finds your daughter. She wasn't his first victim. No, no, not at all. And, you know, we didn't find that out until three and a half weeks later. Um we found out that he had been at uh, Monica Massaro's house in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, 22 hours before he came to our house. And then July 13th, he had killed another woman in Pennsylvania. And days before that, he had left another woman for dead. So, I mean, he had been out on a spree for sure. Now, these sprees don't just happen all of a sudden and or stop all of a sudden. Chances are this had been going on uh, elsewhere, other cities, other unsolved murders or missing people. Absolutely. I, I don't question it for a moment. I think he's been doing this for a very long time. And, and I'm pretty sure we're going to hear about um, at, least, at least one more case, and, and who knows if we'll hear about even other, other cases. I remember seeing the uh, this fellow, his name, by the way, in case any of you uh, know this guy, his name was uh, Adam uh, Leroy Lane, correct? Correct. Uh, big, big fellow. Big, mm -hmm. hefty burger sort of character. <laughs> and in his conversation with police, when they were asking him about this previous young woman who had her throat slit, he said that was an accident. Oh, right. Yeah, that uh, in wrestling with her, she accidentally put her throat <laughs> against the knife and killed herself. Yeah. I don't think anyone was following that as being, you know, filled with veracity. Right. No. He, 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 he I mean, really, it, that amazed me that he said that, that he thought that the cops were going to buy that. But, you know, I, I guess he had to say something. You know, what's amazing is, is most of these guys, as sick as they are, also have a great deal of inflated ego and criminal pride. Because they think they can get away with it, and even if caught, usually think they can talk their way out of it, and will often represent themselves uh, even uh, in court as if they were an attorney. Wow. Uh, it's one of the peculiar characteristics of these sick people. This emotionally must have traumatized, <laughs> talk about post-traumatic stress, your daughter, how did she handle this? Um, you know, it, it did. And we didn't find out about that until a little a little later. I mean, we it was recommended that she see a therapist. Um, and we found a therapist that worked actually at the local high school and also worked through the court system. And so she started seeing a therapist and, and really started talking through a lot of the things that she was feeling. And she, she would have um, panic attacks in the middle of the night where she would be frozen. When she was sleeping up in her upstairs bedroom, she was petrified couldn't get out of bed and we didn't know this was going on until we met with the therapist and the therapist told us that, that she was absolutely terrified and so then we would start texting if 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 she couldn't you know if she woke up in the middle of the night and needed water i would go up she'd text me and i would go up i would get her the water i would if she needed to go to the bathroom i she would text me i would go up i would walk her to the bathroom uh, because she she was absolutely terrorized by this well the imprinting in the brain of something this traumatic doesn't get erased real fast no 
No, it doesn't. What about you? Your personal trauma on this? You know, for for me, um, the night that the night that I found out about the case in New Jersey where he had killed Monica Massaro, I I mean, needless to say, none of us were sleeping at all. But I um, I couldn't sleep that night, and I went out. We had since gotten a, a security system because we didn't have a security system before. So we had since gotten one, and so I went and I sat down, and I just, thoughts just started pouring out of my head, and I just started writing about what we had been through, everything. And I just started documenting my experience and trying, it really was a way for me to try to put my head around what had happened to us. And somewhat of a cathartic experience or to try to get some closure. For those who just joined us, we're, we're, we're talking to uh, Jim McDonough, who is the uh, author, co-author of the new book, Caught in the Act, which is exactly what they did. They caught this serial killer in the act of attempting to kill their own daughter. And uh, turned out that she wasn't the, uh, the only victim or intended victim. And it was just the beginning. I mean, this, this thing, which when they take this guy away, for many people would think, well, that's the end of the story. But for you and your family, it wasn't, was it? No, it wasn't the end at all. Especially for us, I mean, we, we had a good ending, you know. We, we all survived. But there were other families that, that were not as fortunate, and they lost their loved ones. And I just felt that I had a commitment um, to them to make sure that I was there for his sentencing, for his other crimes, that I was just there for the family in any way possible because we were all tied together now by this guy. Yes, I want to digress just for a moment because something uh, had occurred to me, and I'm, I'm sure you, maybe your daughter had to deal with this. My cousin, my cousin, my, my nephew was in the Vietnam War, and <coughs> if, uh, everyone in his platoon was killed except him. He miraculously survived under a stack of bodies, and when yeah. they arrived and they, you know, the other army guys or whatever, and they're pulling the bodies off, and here's my nephew underneath alive, and they go, are you so-and-so? And they go, yes. He goes, well, we're sending you back to L.A. Your father has had a heart attack. Put him on a plane, and like, what, 12 hours later, he's standing at LAX after just having gone through this. And he had what they call survivor guilt. Oh, I'm sure. And that is, here... These, are, these people who are in the same situation are dead. I'm alive. And however the brain processes this, there was a sense of, of, of guilt. <clears throat> Did your daughter have any of this? Um, you know, honestly, Burl, I don't, I don't know if she did or not. I know that I did. Now, why would, uh, how, tell us about that. What, uh, what, how did that work for you? Or I, not work for you? I really just felt like it was a... It, I, it just broke my heart, really, that other families lost their their wives and daughters because of this guy, and we were so fortunate enough to survive. I, I just felt like I had a duty and a responsibility to them to make sure that they weren't forgotten. And I, I you know, I just must have been horribly i mean devastating for them but also for you as a mother to see these other families mm. who had lost their daughters to this maniac exactly and, and and if we had hesitated if we had rolled over and gone back to sleep that night you know she is 15 having a bad dream in the next room I and mean, we could have easily rolled over and gone back to sleep and 
but you know we didn't and thank god we didn't because she was a, a millisecond away from having her throat slashed and and us waking up to see the most horrific sight yeah that's as a father i cannot imagine anything more devastatingly terrifying mm. than what you saw i'm so i'm almost surprised you guys didn't freeze you know I know. I mean, and, and that's been said to us in the past that that a lot of times people will just freeze in in terror. But you know, it was my husband. His quick thinking. I mean, he was just really, just I I was just amazed to watch what he did. I mean, he's five foot nine and a hundred hundred and sixty pounds. Wow! And this guy was um, probably six foot tall and two hundred and forty pounds. So to to just watch. My husband, in just tremendous, I'm, tremendous heroics. Yeah. <coughs> well, of course, I don't imagine. Uh, now, your husband isn't there, but I don't imagine he stopped and thought to himself, "Gee, that guy's awful big and has a knife, and I'm awful <laughs> small and I'm not. Maybe I should let him knife my daughter." I don't think people, you know, go through a, a thought no. process like that. You just exactly. react. No, you do, and 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 any parent, and that's the thing that I I keep saying is is any parent would have reacted the same way that we did. But it's not it's not limited just to parents. No, oh, yeah. true. any 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 true. adult entrusted with a child's care would do the same thing. Exactly. Well, at least I, one would certainly hope so. And yet, you know, if there's a large group of people, and experience this on a, on a uh, L.A. Metro bus, where a uh, skinhead decided to beat the crap out of uh, some Mexican-American gentlemen for no apparent reason, and it was so sudden, and I'm sitting in the back of the bus, and everyone is just sitting and watching. You know, no, it was like they were just all stunned, you know. No one did anything. And then a guy ran off the bus, but he got arrested. You know. But there is that, that mentality when there's a whole bunch of people, they tend to hold back. But in that situation where it's someone that you're in, that, you know, that's your, their life is in your hands, you react, you respond, and he certainly did thank God for that. Yeah. But your daughter was happy about it, too. Yeah, you know, and, and, and she just, it's funny because she was 15, and she was a young 15, really. And she she just, she set, to, told people that, you know, I wasn't scared because I knew my parents were going to come come in. Wow. And stop this guy. You know, there was a, a case in uh, it was a Thailand or India where a guy did exactly what this fellow did. Came into a girl's bedroom. She wasn't asleep, however. She had her cell phone in her hand. And they do a lot of texting over there. She texted her mother in the other part of the house, help, I'm being attacked. Really? <laughs> yes. And that's, that's how they got the guy. She was, he had his hand over her mouth, but wow. her hands were free, and she had her cell phone, and she texted it. Wow. <laughs> and that's how they got it. Same sort of thing. They, they got him. Thank God. Uh, so... Well, we'll get into here, and I'm kind of hedging a bit because I don't know when our break's coming up. So if we, if we interrupt you, uh, we apologize. But so you, you get this guy, and now it comes out that there are other people that he has done this to. Right. What are the charges against him? Is he charged all, like, with three what, attempted homicide and two homicides? Um, well, for our, for our case, um, it was attempted homicide. Um, and he got 25 to 30 years for our our case, and that went to that 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 went to trial very quickly. Um, he pleaded out actually, so we didn't even have to go to trial. Oh. That went through the system very quickly, and then um, in New Jersey, it took two years to bring him um, to Pen I mean to New Jersey and to sentence him. 
Uh, well, how long was it? Two years before the trial, or two years before the whole thing was over? Two. Uh, it was. It was two years before he went to. To before he was sentenced in New Jersey, and then it was three years before he was sentenced in Pennsylvania. So he didn't. He, he didn't plead guilty in those cases, and there was. A, he did actually. Oh, he, but they had to have trials anyway, or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. It just took. A, it took a while because he was in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts had to release him uh-huh. to New Jersey. Then New Jersey had to release him to Pennsylvania. So to, to going through the system, it, it took a while. Um, but yeah, he got he got life for um, he got I think 63 years for Monica Massaro's murder. That was in New Jersey, and then he got life for Darlene Ewald, and he got 25 to 30 on top of the life for Patricia Brooks, her attempted murder. No. So where is he serving? He is serving in Pennsylvania. I believe it's um, Fayette State Prison. Did they do any psychiatric evaluations on this guy that you know? They did do psychiatric evaluations at Bridgewater State Hospital in Massachusetts. Um, do they have any uh, insights or conclusions at all? You know, I'm sure they do, but unfortunately, because, um, because it's a psych evaluation and it goes under the medical HIPAA, I guess, that they, they, you can't get that information. So they didn't have a competency hearing. Um, I don't think you know. You, I don't think so. I mean, I think they. It was very clear that he was sane and competent to stand trial. Okay, because that, that, that's a question that I that was dealing with. In fact, I got a letter yesterday from Rhonda Glover, who I just written a book about that just came out called Fatal Beauty, who uh, murdered her boyfriend, shot him uh, thirteen times with a Glock nine millimeter. Claim self-defense. It's kind of hard to do that when six of the shots are when he's already on the ground and two of those are below the waist. Yeah. Uh, but they had a competency hearing if she was competent to stand trial, and the answer was no. And then uh, about 90 days later, they said yes because they got her to conceal her symptoms. And in that case, when there is a competency hearing, then uh, the information shared at the hearing regarding the person's psychiatric or medical history becomes a matter of, of public record. Ah. Uh, so that's how I was able to get the information on that. And had there not been... Uh, um, fortunately, she did give me a, a medical release, which was very nice of her. <laughs> she cooperated. And, and she wanted what she wanted was a copy of her medical records from me, but uh, I'd never bothered to get them all because there was enough stuff in the competency hearing public file, you know, for, for my needs. But it always, these people uh, are obviously damaged in shipping and handling somewhere along the line. We say uh, healthy people don't. You know, say, I got a great idea. I'm going to put on a black mask and get several uh, long weapons and go out and hunt humans. Right. Uh, no, it's very, very scary. Uh, yeah. And, you know, especially for someone such as yourself. But it's interesting that uh, people who listen to our show and buy your book and buy my book often have an exaggerated sense of danger. If you read a lot of true crime books, you tend to think that everybody you meet is going to be you know, coming after you with a, a 15-inch knife. Did this situation or this experience make you paranoid? Well, you know, right after the home invasion, it made me paranoid for sure. I kept all my doors locked and my windows locked and everything. But at the same time... We saw so much good in our community and our friends and our family. Um, the way they reached out to us and supported us uh, really made me see that in times of tragedy and, and, and trouble, people are there for you. And so it really hasn't changed my perspective 
if anything, it's made me believe in the good in people more than what this guy was able to accomplish as far as terrorizing us. Yeah, because... Uh... You know, there's a lot of people thinking, well, you never know when, when this is going to happen. You never, you know, and what, what, are the, what are the odds? And I don't know exactly what the odds are of having a guy come into your house with a 15-inch hunting knife. You know, uh, It doesn't happen every day, but it certainly happened to you. Right, right. And, and you know, that same only five days before our home invasion was that horrible case in Connecticut. Oh, my God, yes. In fact, we'll be talking about that more in detail next week. Uh, Vito Colucci, a uh, famous private eye, was following that case very closely, and we talked to him about it about a uh, year or so ago. But go ahead and, and uh, mention that a little bit, if you don't well, mind. Well, yeah, that was five days before our home invasion. And, you know, that was in Connecticut. It was the Pettit family. And these two ex-con, or these two, I think they were parolees, um, they murdered this family in the most heinous possible way. And the husband lived and, and lost his wife and two beautiful daughters. And that really terrified everyone around here because Massachusetts is not that far from Connecticut. It's, it was the same type of um, perhaps a little bit more affluent neighborhood, but same kind of setting and for that to happen I had turned to my husband when we heard the news and I said do you think that we should think about getting you know an alarm system and Kevin said oh honey come on like what nothing like that happens out here uh, what are the odds? Yeah, well, yeah, honey, what are you worried about? We're in a safe neighborhood. We don't have to worry about some guy with a 15-inch hunting knife coming to the house. Right. And, then, and random. Yeah. Yeah. And then there you go. I mean, it, it happens all, all over the place. It doesn't matter if you live in a small town or a big city or it really doesn't matter where you live. I mean, everyone is... Um, can be a subject of a random violent crime. Well, I'm sure it occurred to you that had your daughter locked that back door, he would have gone on to your neighbors. Or Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. <clears throat> Interesting thought. Yeah. yeah. So somebody else might not have been as lucky. Correct. I mean, we, we were, we really had angels watching over us. I really believe that. Well, not just you, but whoever would have been next. True. Right. Yeah, it's right. uh, very strange. We're going to get into the whole story of how she happened to do this book right after we take a 60-second break. You're listening to True Crime Uncensored on Outlaw Radio. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. 
You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put him together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Yes, of course. Burl Bear, I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds, and I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. There we go. Hi there. Welcome back to True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair is not a lawyer. It's fact checker Mark Boyer. Hello. Next week on the show, as we just mentioned, uh, and if you hadn't heard us before, you'll hear it right now, Vito Colucci, uh, private eye from uh, uh, back east, Connecticut, uh, who is going to be in Las Vegas uh, with yours truly and Henry Hill and uh, Andrew DiDonato and Andrew Colucci and uh, all of us. We have a mob sit-down at the Royal uh, next Saturday night in Las Vegas. So if you're going to be in Vegas, please uh, drop by and uh, join the fun. We'll Black fests are optional. <laughs> yeah, but no musical entertainment, so if someone walks in with a violin case, hit the floor. That's our advice. Uh, <laughs> so if you're looking for something to do in Vegas next Saturday night, come, come join us at the Royal. I uh, will be doing the show and then uh, running, out of, uh, running out the door right afterwards next week. Thank you. And then the uh, following week after that, Diane Fanning, uh, take us into the Casey uh, Anthony case in uh, lurid detail. And then the following week, Don Lasseter, who is uh, an incredible true crime writer, will be joining us live in the lounge, being as he lives in the, uh, the L.A. area. We're talking to the co-author of the fantastic new book, bone-chilling new book, True Story, Caught in the Act, uh, Jeannie McDonough, who caught a serial killer in her daughter's bedroom. And uh, we've been talking about that whole experience, and uh, you just started kind of pouring your soul out in your journal, writing notes. When did you decide to pursue doing a book on this? Oh, boy. Um, I would say I was probably writing for about three months or so. And a couple of my, my husband read what I wrote, and then a coworker read what I wrote, and my father-in-law, and everyone pretty much said to me, you know, this is really pretty good. Um, you should maybe think about doing something with this. And I was just writing for myself because it was a way of me healing and, and trying to deal with what had happened. And then when they, everyone started reading it, I said, okay, well, maybe I, I will take this a little seriously. And so I bought um, the book Writer's Marketplace mm -hmm. and learned how to write a query letter. And I sent out query letters to several um, publishers and agents, and I got back a response from only one, and it was a small publisher in New Jersey. And she basically asked me to send her my, what I had written so far. I had probably about 100 pages written. And she got back to me and said, well, you know, your writing is very spiritual, very um, reflective, it's spiritual. I, I think, you know... You have a couple of choices here. You either want to get a co-writer and um, have the co-writer help you with the investigative portions of the book. Right. 
or you can market it to a Christian um, publisher. And you made the right decision and went for the mass market. I went for the mass market, and she gave me Paul Leonardo, who is my co-writer. She gave me his name, and he had a website, and so I reached out to him, and he responded, and we met each other. We really liked each other. Well, he and has an excellent reputation to begin with. He's very well-known in, uh, in the publishing world. Yeah, well, I, he, great guy, really great guy, and he was local. And so he said, listen, this particular publisher was going to take all the rights of the book if she mm -hmm. published it. And I said, there's no way I want to do that, because I had actually already made a bunch of contacts um, with people, uh, and I, I just didn't want to give up my rights. And Paul said, well, then I think we should get an agent. So he sent out query letters and got back responses from several agents and then um, we ended up going with Linda Connor and she brought us um, Penguin, Berkeley Penguin. Mm -hmm. Good company. Yeah, yeah, and that's how it, it all it all came together. So you've had to uh, in a way relive this nightmare in promoting this book on my show, you were on Susan Bartlestone's show I think earlier this week. Yep. Yeah. Uh, is this difficult for you, emotionally, or is it rewarding for you? Um, it's 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 hard, just for the fact that it's a good story for us because we survived, and it's it's not for the other families. Yeah. And so I, I I am hesitant because I don't want to cause them any further anguish. This is a this is a real problem, and as. Probably, hopefully, God willing, uh, you have no further experiences where you'll be writing more true crime books. But as a true crime author, and maybe you've already experienced this, there are, you're going to get some hate mail. I haven't yet, but I have gotten um, some negative feedback from people that, that feel that, you know, that question my motives. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, there's always going to be people out there that... that criticize you and think that you're doing it because, you know, you want to make a bundle of money and... You know, you what know, this is really amazing is that no one sends hate mail to the newspaper for doing, you know, superficial coverage. No one sends hate mail to Dateline or 48 Hours for doing an hour coverage. You spend all this time and all this effort with Paul doing a full in-depth book and you get the letter saying that you're just after the money. Yeah, yeah, but, you know... <laughs> People are going to believe what they're going to believe. I, I know why I wrote it. I know what I wanted to accomplish by writing it. And, you know, if people enjoy it, great. If they don't, then they don't. Well, also, hopefully, uh, it'll save some lives. And speaking of, of lives, uh, along the way, your capture freed somebody accused of one of the other murders. Yeah. That's true. That's miraculous. Yeah, that's that's true, and it, it's it's unfortunate that that they were focusing on on that particular individual after he had just lost his wife, and oh. you know, I mean, you're going through all that, and then to be the focus of the investigation, uh, you know, that's that's devastating for your family, for your friends, for your community. Um, yeah. How long was this other guy? Was he actually convicted? I'm no. No, he wasn't. But they were looking at him. They had no other leads. They really thought that it was him because, you know, his wife was talking on a cell, on, actually on a remote phone um, 
on her back deck. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember the story now. Yeah, I, I saw him interviewed on television. The the yeah. husband of the woman who was brutally murdered on her back patio. The one who was, she, she just was going to go on a cruise to Hawaii or someplace fun yeah, like that. Yeah, and unfortunately her husband couldn't go because he was a, a, a youth football coach. And, you know, so she was planning this trip. <coughs> and, and so sadly, just, you know, this guy just stepped out of the woods and, and slit her throat. And she never had the opportunity to do anything after that. And no. Her family was devastated. And I keep thinking now of this fellow who was here. He just lost his wife, and then they're focusing on him as being the killer. That's that happens all too often. It of course, it's always the the spouse is always the first person you look at. Mm-hmm. But if you focus on that, and you know, in good police work, you don't try to limit your investigation you you don't try to you know you try to eliminate suspects but you don't focus on want to say this one has to be it because you could be wrong and uh well we've quite often mentioned the the tragic case in texas where the fellow was executed for uh murdering his children and then afterwards uh, experts uh investigated the scene and said no he was trying to save them from a fire. He was accused of burning his children alive in, uh, in a fire, and actually he was trying to save them from the fire that started from an electrical problem and not from him setting it. But they didn't figure that out until after they'd executed him. Oh, my God. Yeah, makes one really wonder about things. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. sorts of things. I know the why me question always comes up in these things, and the why not me. Right. Uh, does this still haunt you? In terms of what, why are, are we alive so we could stop him? Is my daughter alive so this guy could get caught? You know this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I truly believe that that we had um, angels watching over us, and I really feel like my mother-in-law was there. I feel like the spirit of the women that he had just killed. I I just feel there was a force at work in that room that night that allowed us to do what we did. And, you know, I really, truly believe that. And and that makes me feel like there was a reason why we survived. Yeah, because it had to come to a stop. It had to, whether it, uh, you know, it's it's the same with with virtually every serial killer story or uh, like that. Eventually, of course, we only know about the ones that get caught. But the ones that do get caught is usually for some, the most bizarre set of coincidences such as the ones in your home that evening that yeah. made it possible or someone seeing something and putting the pieces together in a random thought or random comment makes it possible for the person to get caught unless it's someone who wants to get caught uh, we had the situation is uh, on Caitlin Rother, who was uh, on our show recently, is a great writer. Uh, her book Body Parts that came out last year, where the fellow actually walked into the police station and said, "Hi, I'm a serial killer. You haven't even been looking for me, and I need to stop." Wow. And that's, I think that's one of the first times in contemporary history where that has happened. At first, they just thought he was nuts, that he was making it up, until he reached in his pockets and pulled out some body parts. Wow. Said, yeah, you got to, you know, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, you don't hear that very often. That's... No, you don't hear that very often. I don't think that would have been, I, I definitely don't think that that's, that's Adam Leroy Lane, but wow. I mean. yeah. But it sounds like that once he was caught, 
he didn't put up as much resistance in his defense as one would expect. I know. He really didn't. I, yeah, right. I guess he figured maybe why bother, you know. It, I guess so, you know. I mean, because I mean, maybe he knew that all this was going to come out. But he did, he did say to a fellow um, inmate at Bridgewater State Hospital, he said, just wait, I'm going to be famous. He's going to be what? I'm going to be famous. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus. That's like, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dan Zupanski's book, uh, The Shall We Dance Killings? No. Most, most horrifying, uh, one of the most horrifying shows we ever had. <laughs> the book is good, but it'll just make you ill. This guy committed the murders and actually broke into Susan Sarandon's uh, trailer there when they were filming the movie Shall We Dance and stole some jewelry, which yeah. he left at the scene of the crime which is why they call the show We Dance Killings. He murdered this gentleman and did all sorts of horrifying things to the body for no other reason except to be famous. Oh, God. That was his entire reason. And this took place in Canada where they did not yet have the law that you couldn't profit from your crimes. And he got hold of uh, Dan Zupanski. The journalist says, I want to be famous. Do this book about me. You know, and I'll split the money with you. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's how sick some people could be. They want to be famous. Yeah, no, I know. Go down but in history. He, 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 yeah, he said, and I, you know, so I, it, which also leads me to believe I, th I really, truly feel like, you know, he didn't just start doing this the month of July 2007. He's been doing this for a very long time. Yeah, well, he, say, he seemed to have his act down. Yeah, he, he seemed to. He, he didn't the night he came to our house, but again, that was... Yeah, well, if you stop and think about it, however, I mean, he's got the whole, you know, ninja routine down. He's got the clothing. He's got multiple weapons. He's going house to house looking for someone to, you know, a woman to murder. He has to know that every time he enters a residence, there is that risk factor. Yeah. That someone's yeah. going to blow him away or, you know... That may be part of the thrill. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know... The, the, when he broke into the house, um, the woman that he left for dead that did not die, he was not wearing a mask that night. Really? No, he was not because she was able to identify him after we had caught him. So the mask came out after the, I mean, the mask came out with the next killing. Well, yeah, that's similar to Robert Lee Yates, who the first person he killed, uh, he used a, uh, you know, a 357 Magnum, and then quickly figured out that he'd be much smarter using a 22. <laughs> you know, if their heads in his lap when he shoots him. Uh, hold on a second, there, friends. Uh, so you, you you generated uh, um, relationships with the other victims' families. Right. Right. Yeah. We did because, you know, right at, at that, the first Christmas, we had gotten Christmas card, a Christmas card from um, friends of the Ewoks, and then we had gotten a Christmas card, actually a thank you card, from Monica Massaro's parents. And it just, it opened the lines of communication between the Massaros and, and myself and my husband, and, and then it opened the lines of communication between the Ewoks and ourselves and so ever since then we've just really connected and um i i just have this feeling of responsibility that that's 
that was the main reason for writing the book, was that I, I really felt like because we had survived, I had the opportunity to give the other victims a voice. Mm-hmm. The book is called Caught in the Act, in case you missed it. The book is called Caught in the Act, uh, the true story of how this uh, family catches a serial killer in their daughter's bedroom by Jeannie McDonough and uh, Paul Leonardo. It's a spellbinding book. Thank you so much for taking the hour to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. It was a very interesting interview. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. What a wonderful woman. She's been through so much. And uh, to get together with uh, Paul Leonardo and do this great book called Caught in the Act, it is available wherever brew brand new mass market paperbacks are sold. And next week, uh, Vito Colucci and hopefully Fred Wolfson. And uh, I'll see you live in Las Vegas next Saturday night at the Royal Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence are next on the Outlaw Radio Network. Come and play